2001, A Space Odyssey, is an epic drama of adventure and exploration which begins millions of years ago and ends with man confronting his destiny among the stars. It is a story that will sweep you across a half billion miles to the greatest of all the planets, mighty Jupiter. And even then, your journey will be just beginning. For across the light years, the stars are waiting and watching. 2001, A Space Odyssey, reveals the strangeness, beauty, and wonder that may be waiting for us on the moon and planets in the year 2001. 2001, A Space Odyssey. A Stanley Kubrick production from MGM in Cinerama. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for checking in with us once again at Kubrick's Universe, where we continue our ongoing mission to explore the art and vision of the late, great Stanley Kubrick. If you're listening to this, odds are you've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, have you ever seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Star Trek, the motion picture? How about Blade Runner? Or even Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life? We ask because, in this case, there is one degree of separation that connects these masterful films. And that connection is Douglas Trumbull. Doug Trumbull is a true legend in the film industry, having gone from animator to groundbreaking special effects genius to visionary director to pioneer in massive technical achievements like the development of IMAX and high frame rate film shooting and projection. We had the chance to speak with Doug in spring 2020. He graciously answered all our most nerdy questions, but also shared some of his personal reflections on, among other things, working with Kubrick. In this episode, you'll hear Doug talk about things like how a cold call to Stanley Kubrick led to him getting a job on 2001 at the ripe young age of 23, creating the dozens of rear projection screens on the Discovery One that represented HAL 9000's many computer readouts long before CGI existed as well as how he helped bring a bland model of the moon bus to life, and having been one of the few American craftsmen on 2001 who had carte blanche to work in a multidisciplinary way on a unionized British set. 
And of course, we'll hear insight on his process for developing the slit scan camera, without which there would have been no Stargate sequence, or indeed, arguably, the most mind-blowing third act in motion picture history. You'll even hear Doug Trumbull talk with us about his own unique connection to the Wizard of Oz. But not quite. But at the same time, yeah, quite. Anyway, it's complicated. And to quote Dr. Clayton Stonewall Forrester, it would take a scientist to explain it, and I'm simply too mad. So let's just get into it. Hey, Mr. Trumbull, are you there? Yes. Can hey, you thanks. Me? Yeah, I can hear you great. Thanks so, thanks, thanks so much for joining us on Kubrick's Universe. My pleasure. I've got uh, our producer, Stephen Rigg, on the line, and uh, our chief researcher, James Marinaccio. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Doug. Douglas, uh, let's start at the beginning. As we understand it, your father, Donald Trumbull, uh, did the effects for The Wizard of Oz. What are some of your reflections of learning about his craft as a kid? And do you recall deciding when you wanted to become involved in filmmaking and special effects? Well, a couple of things first is that my father did not do the special effects for The Wizard of Oz. He worked on it with many other people. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was very young at the time. He was just a starter. Um, and he was working on a number of different movies. And uh, that was way before I was born when he was working on The Wizard of Oz in right. the late 30s. Right. So... Uh, over time, it, it became apparent to me through my father and the family that he had worked on this movie, and he made sure we saw the movie and things like that. Um, and I found out that he had been working on really complicated and kind of dangerous work of doing wire rigs for the flying monkeys and uh, rigging for the apple tree mm. and, and many other things that he did on that film and many other films. But the issue of him working in the movie industry was really not very, uh, it's not very a big issue in my life. And by the time I was born, he was already, had already left the movie industry and had moved into the aer aerospace industry and the aircraft industry. Okay. So, um, I think he regretted leaving the movie industry. Hmm. Uh, many years passed. So when I was young and growing up with my family, my father was an engineer working for several different engineering companies, having nothing to do with movies. Hmm. But at the same time, he made sure that I saw movies that he thought I should see. <laughs> and so he made sure I learned about the uh, animation and the Disney multiplayer camera and right, Pinocchio right. and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Sleeping Beauty. And um, uh, later on, you know, he made sure I saw Actually, he was Forbidden Planet. He made sure I saw Forbidden Planet. And yeah, of course. The Day the Earth Stood Still and, mm -hmm. and a lot of science fiction movies. He was really fascinated with them and made sure I went to the theater to see these movies. So that was movies were a really part of my life, but I never participated with him in the production of movies. and He never talked much about it. Right. Interesting. Um, but at some point along the way, all that exposure your dad gave you must have uh, influenced your own decision. Yeah, very much. And he had a Super 8 camera, and he showed me how to work it. And uh, I did time-lapse movies, and uh, he, he and I built a go-kart together, you know, a little small racing yeah, car. of course. And we had a lot of fun, and I would make movies for my go-kart. 
And um, oh wow! So um, movies were part of my upbringing, but not professionally. Never him professionally talking about it. Right, right. And many, many years went by, and he became increasingly disillusioned with his work as an engineer. Um, and there was some friction with my stepmother who wanted him to be groomed for bigger things and to become an, kind of an engineering executive. Mm. And my father did not like that at all. He became increasingly disillusioned and unhappy. He just wanted to work in the workshop with his drill press and his bandsaw and his welding machine and his milling machine and his lathe. And um, so when I was just beginning my career, uh, he was off in Detroit working for a company supplying complicated epoxy sealants for the automotive industry. Okay. And and had a, quite a number of patents that had to do with epoxies and fiberglass and those kind of technologies. But he was very unhappy. And I was just beginning silent running. And I realized that maybe my dad would be interested in coming back into the movie industry. And I called him up and said, would you be game to come and help me work on silent running? Because we're doing these robots and we need some little cars and we need – you know, something like the, the go-kart that I had built with him years before. Sure. You know, props, mechanical props and things like that. And he's sure. He, so he quit his job, came <laughs> back across the company country and, and working for me on silent running. And he bought a house with my stepmother. And uh, we started doing movies together again. And that was absolutely fabulous. And he is a great engineer. And so he did the robot arms on the drones in silent running. Oh, no and kidding. He helped, yeah, and he built the little cars that they race around. And, right, uh, right. And, and, and many other things, and gadgets for photography, photographic processes, and things like that. So we were back in the movie business together. That must have been really special for you. It was. It was really great. And there's, there's, there's a film that was made by a friend of mine called... Uh, Excuse me. The name of the movie is called Film as Experience, and it's got an interview of me and my father in it. Maybe I, I could find that for you if you want me to find it. Oh, um, that, yeah, that would be great. And, and one of the things that happened during that period of my life was that, um, you know, I went off to London and I worked on 2001 with Stanley Kubrick, and that was my film school. Uh, I was very, very lucky and very precocious and pushy, and that's how I got my job. <laughs> and I was, you know, I had been interested in science fiction, so my little artist's portfolio was filled with alien planets and spaceships. Right, of course. And that's what that's what got me my job at Graphic Films. And then Graphic Films uh, produced this film called To the Moon and Beyond for the New York World's Fair. Right. In this in this oddball. Uh, 10 perforation, 70 millimeter film process called Cinerama 360. And then uh, Graphic Films was hired. The, the Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clarke came to the World's Fair and saw that film. And, and they thought, well, this really validates our idea that we can make a Cinerama 70 millimeter spectacular sci-fi movie. And uh, so I got hired on 2001 to go work with Stanley Kubrick. You know, you were obviously integral in uh, the making of To the Moon and Beyond. 
which got shown at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. And, and of course, this is what brought you to Stanley's attention. But were you aware that, you know, this lauded young director had been drawn to your work previously before you were hired? Well, I don't think he, he didn't know of me as an individual. He was working directly with Graphic Films and its owner, Lester Novros, and Con Pedersen, who was working for Lester Novros. So Con was one of the directors at Graphic Films, and uh, I was working under Con Pedersen. And uh, so it really wasn't until Stanley Kubrick decided to make the movie in England that he decided, well, this is just going to be too far away. I mean, the distance between England and Los Angeles is just too great. And so, you know, there were no fax machines or facsimiles or digital photography or anything at those days. So he just felt that the distance was too great and he couldn't wait for airmail to deliver drawings 7,000 miles away. Right, right. It was, it was, it was just going to take forever for us to interface with the movie. And so he terminated the contract with graphic mm-hmm. and, and, uh, I got laid off because Graphic had no more projects in the pipeline at the time. And I called Con Pedersen. I said, well, you know, I really want to keep working on this movie. Is there a way I can contact Kubrick directly? And that's just kind of the precocious side of me being, you know, fearless and trying to, you know, keep working. Sure. And so I don't know the exact details of what communications happened once I did that, but Khan first said, well, I can't tell you about Kubrick's contact information because I'm under a non-disclosure agreement. Right. And, I, and I'm, I'm under contract to graphic film, so I can't tell you. But I said, come on, be a friend. You know, <laughs> you know, just give me a break. And he said, well, I'm not going to tell you directly, but I'll tell you how to find out. Okay. And he, and he said, well, Kubrick's phone number is actually penciled in the corner of the bulletin board at the office. <laughs> And if you go there, you can you can get his number and call him yourself and see what happens. So I can only imagine that, you know, because I called Kubrick. I got him directly on the phone. I said, I'm Doug Trumbull. I'm work- I've been working at Graphic Films. I've been working on uh, designs for your movie, and I'd love to continue if I could. And he said, well, I'll look into it, and, and, he, would, and he would call me back. And so I'm sure he called Les Nobros and Con Pedersen and said, well, who is this kid? Um that must have happened, but I'm not sure it happened, but I can assume it did. And Kubrick called me back and said, sure, I'll get you uh, a plane ticket for you and your wife to come over and work on the movie. It was as simple as that. That's, and that's, wow, that's fascinating. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's true then that you really did cold call Stanley after he decided to keep the full production in England. Yes. <laughs> that's great. Can you tell us about your like your first day at the studios? I mean, what went through your mind when you saw the scope and scale of that production? And, and what did you see during those first few days in the studio? Well, it was kind of mind-boggling because when I arrived, the film was well into, you know, what we would call pre-production. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was introduced to uh, Wally Gentleman, who was already on the movie, who subsequently departed. And I was mm-hmm. introduced to... Uh, Tom Howard, who did the front projection. I was introduced to uh, uh, Wally Beavers, who was the, the physical effects supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the production designer uh, and, and illustrators, Roy Carnan was an illustrator. And I'm trying to remember the production designer. Um, 
Tony Masters. So I'm, I'm there kind of, you know, being introduced to the team that's working on the movie. And one of the things they had there in the office was a model of the centrifuge, mm. you know, this, ro- this rotating set. And that right. was fascinating. It was, that, that was probably the most memorable experience I had on that day of being at the studio for the first time. And then they took me around to some of the stages and some of the sets were under construction already. The interior of the space station was under construction. The pod interior was under construction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is my first time. I, I'd never been on a, on a movie studio lot before in my life. And so I thought, well, this is really cool. And I, I was having a great time and getting introduced to where Stanley's office was and meeting everybody there. But I don't really have a very a, a clear or vivid memory of my first moments with Stanley Kubrick. It was just like meeting somebody, an ordinary person. There was nothing, there's never, no fanfare about it. Right, nothing, right. Nothing, nothing very spectacular, just being introduced to the team. And I was this young California guy with uh, uh, cowboy boots and jeans, <laughs> and uh, they all thought this was terribly cute. And uh, I started right. working on the movie. So the, it, you know, the first thing that started developing for me on the movie was that he expected that I would start handling animation because that's what graphic films did for a business. Mm. And I said, okay, that's fine. What do you need? And he says, well, we need to do all these readouts. And so the whole idea of HAL and the HAL readouts and the script and everything became vividly um, in the forefront of what we needed to accomplish. And he explained to me how they were going to have these projection screens in all these sets that represented what's how, what HAL was doing. You know, he's, he's managing the spacecraft. He's managing the functionality of the, right, of the, right. the oxygen and the atmosphere and the nuclear reactor and the food. And he's just running the whole place. Right. And that our job was to invent kind of a computer graphics style for these readouts. And Wally Gentleman was there and Wally left the movie several months in through some illness or whatever. I don't know what his personal issues were. I know that Wally didn't actually get along with Stanley Kubrick very well. Okay. Uh, but that's beside the point. It really didn't matter. But Wally was this wonderful guy from the, he was a Canadian guy from the National Film Board of Canada and was one of the principal uh, contributors to a movie called Universe. The ground beneath our feet is the surface of a planet whirling at thousands of miles an hour around a distant sun. Our life is possible only because of the light and warmth of that sun, a star. Yet the sun which shines on us is only one out of billions of such stars in the universe. The film about the universe, it's about planets and the sun and stars and interstellar travel and galaxies and all this kind of stuff. It has a lot of visual effects in it. The movie was shot in black and white, 35 millimeter film. Mm-hmm. And the narrator of the film is Douglas Rain. Oh, okay. That's where I've heard the connection of. That's, that's the connection. You guys, yes. So when you see this movie, you'll hear how. 250,000 miles away, the moon. This is the moon that men have worshipped as a goddess that countless lovers have sighed over and sworn by.
It will take immense courage to journey to this place, for on this pitted and pocked ball of pumice and stone, there is no atmosphere, no air to breathe, no sound to hear. So among your first tasks on 2001 was creating or crafting the many animations using tiny rear projection screens that are seen on board the Ares Moon Shuttle and the Discovery One, which, you know, seamlessly appear as data display screens. So had you, had, I mean, amazing, amazing stuff, suffice it to say. But did you have any prior idea as to how you were going to accomplish these? Or was it, no, you know, no. born out of, it was born out of necessity on the shoot then? Exactly. And the one of the interesting stories behind the development of that was that the, the, there were no digital displays and no television monitors or anything that was going to work. Um, as you might, as you might be aware, in the world of film, you know, where you have a camera with a 24 frame per second frame rate and yes. a shutter, a shutter in the camera, right. synchro- synchronizing that to a video display was horrendously difficult. Yep, yep, I know exactly and, what you're talking about. And so they had problems. They probably tried that before I even got there. And Wally Gentleman was kind of spearheading how to solve the problem, and they were going to also attempt. 35 millimeter rear projection uh, and had probably done some tests and they decided that, well, Stanley wants, you know, a dozen of these screens running simultaneously throughout live action photography inside a rotating set. Hmm. And so that was going to be impossible. And the only way to do it was to do it was 16 millimeter projection. So even though the animation of the HAL readouts were shot at 35 millimeter. They generated 16 millimeter color prints and tried 16 millimeter projection. And the trick that Wally Weavers invented at the time to solve the problem was to put a triple bladed shutter in the 16 millimeter projector oh, wow. projectors mm-hmm. so that there, so that there was no uh, frame synchronization problem. It really didn't matter right. what frame rate or shutter opening the camera had. As long as the projector had a triple-bladed shutter, you'd get enough of a percentage of each frame. Got it. So that was a solution so that they could just buy a whole bunch of inexpensive 16-millimeter projectors and have them running simultaneously. And that that solved that technical problem of rear projection. Incredible. And then my job job was to come up with the style of the animation and and try to create this fake uh, radar-like or computer-generated – phosphor-driven kind of display, which Mm. I thought would involve some kind of phosphor delay or some lag or some glow or any number of things that I was trying to incorporate into the photography of the readouts, uh, as well as as the information. But we had to keep the information very generic in the sense that it had to be graphically visual and interesting to look at. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't be anything that would cause you to stop and try to read it. Right. You know, that right. Would, that would just intrude on the story. So I, I just came up with this style that consisted of a couple of elements, which was um, basically photocopying graphs and charts out of scientific journals like Scientific American <laughs> Magazine and things like that. Yeah, sure. And sure. then and then and then we got a, an IBM Selectric typewriter you know the typewriter had that little of course the metal ball the metal ball ball. so you could you could interchange the type font and this type font that i think was called ocr 
typical character recognition font, mm-hmm. which we thought, well, that would look computery. You know, that would be cool. Right. And so I would I would type out all this gibberish of lists of numbers and weird acronyms and stuff that you wouldn't get a chance to read. Sure. And then have that photocopied in black and white as transparency so that the type was white and on a black background and we could light it from behind with colored gels and flicker it or put a filter on the lens and make it glow. and mm. Every trick we could come up with to do the animation. And then, and, and by the way, tell me if I'm going on in much too detail. No, no, no. It, it goes on. Um, we started doing the animation of the of the photography using an outsourced animation photography service. And if you ever tried that before, you have to write what's called an animation cue sheet. And it's a pretty long piece of paper. Right. With, you know, a zillions of columns. And the left column is, you know, what is what is cell number? What is the foreground cell? What's the background cell? What's the intermediate cell? Mm-hmm. What's the What's the frame size? What's the color? What's the brightness? You have to write everything down and give this cue sheet to the animation cameraman. And then you have to provide all the artwork to the cameraman and have it photographed. And we tried that with this local animation studio. And when we, when we realized how long it was taking and how much work it was going to cause, that it would take forever. I mean, it would be years doing thousands of readouts you know yeah. we had to have thousands thousands of feet of film because the projectors are just running continuously through takes of live action of course okay? so you yeah, need yeah. a lot of it so we said well we're not we're just not going to ever get there if we have to use standard techniques and so wally gentleman helped me build a new animation camera system with a more of a normal it was an animation camera but it was a zoom lens on it and a piece of glass and lights from underneath and peg, what we call peg bars, which was a way you register gels or cells for animation. But just completely break all the rules of how you design, uh, list and photograph animation so that I could just talk directly with the animation cameraman who in this case was Bruce Logan, who, had, who was working for this company. We hired him, you know, we, we, uh, scalped him or whatever you call it. Um, recruited him to come and work on the movie and work directly with me so that I could design artwork and give it to him and say, just photograph it this way. And I'm not going to make these cue sheets. Mm -hmm. I'll just make you some notes that says, take this block of copy, flash it for 10 seconds and then put it off and change the gel to another. Right. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. We got to where we could just throw animation artwork in front of the zoom lens and refocus really quickly. And wow. on, on, our, on our best day, we actually shot a thousand feet of animation in one day. And that's when we knew we were off and running. Incredible. And, and that was a stepping stone for me with Stanley Kubrick because he could see that we were solving critically important time sensitive problems for him. And that, sure, okay, we can make all the HAL readouts. Mm hmm. Wow. And so that, that was mission accomplished. And so we, that was kind of going on in the background. We had to make a lot of them, but we had to just come up with the style. Once the style was established and the right, the pieces fell into place. And then he said, okay, well, I'm going to get Doug to try something else. Um, cause that was done. 
And one of the first miniatures that came in from an outsourced uh, fabrication company was the Moon Bus. Right. And, you know, it was about as big as this desk. It was maybe, mm-hmm. you know, two and a half feet long, uh, made out of fiberglass with no detail on it whatsoever, but done according to the specifications that um, Tony Masters had set out for the design of the Moon Bus. And it was unphotographable. It just didn't look interesting. And so st- Stanley said, well, what can what can we do? And I said, well, I think, you know, I'm an airbrush artist. And I'm, a, I'm an artist myself. So there was a, a thing in, in animation that we would use to make paintings of the Apollo program when I was at Graphic Films, which is a thing called a frisket. Mm-hmm. You know what a frisket is? I've heard the term. Well, basically, it's just the idea of creating a, um, uh, what would you call it? Um, it's just like a little cutout. Like sort of like you, a, a cuculorus, except for animation. Exactly. So you take a, a cell of, of, of animation plastic and cut a little hole in it. Right. And use it as a template, and then you spray on it to, to spray some little area, let's say one sure. inch by one, one inch or whatever. And um, I was an artist. I, I knew how to build, how to make thousands of semi-photorealistic animation of the Apollo lunar lander or or the command module or the Saturn V rocket or the vertical assembly building was all animated airbrushed artwork. And so I put my airbrush artwork sensibilities to work on the moon bus and, and use the surface of the moon bus as a painting to create, to, to create the surface of little panels and little details and little smudges of dirt or burn marks where the engines would fire and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then I also came up with this idea that later has been termed kit bashing, which was we would go at, on, our, on our lunch breaks, we would go to a hobby shop nearby and buy model kits of German army tanks and right. other objects and just strip them for parts Yeah, and glue them onto the moon bus. And then I would paint that with my airbrush. It's like cl- kludging it all together, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, so that became you know, well-known years afterwards, which was that you could create this kind of false sense of realism by using real objects on the outside of the moon bus. And that became the style that we set for the whole movie of all the spacecraft would be Mm -hmm. done basically the same way Mm -hmm. of airbrushing and gluing on little surface areas and little textures and little objects that looked like credible looking valves or switches or vents or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, when you photographed it on film, it looked like a real thing. It's so, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So, Doug, do you re- recall the conversation you had with Kubrick about how the film should portray Dave Bowman's journey into the next, you know, next stage of his life, which, of course, later became known as the Stargate sequence? Yeah, um, I don't recall it in, in vivid detail, and it wasn't one conversation. These were ongoing ruminations and talks over dinner or lunch or whatever mm-hmm. or meeting or whatever you know the the whole thing of 2001 evolved as we move forward and uh, you probably know some of the backstories that the you know that Arthur Clark was involved and that um, Bell Laboratories had been developing artificial speech and artificial intelligence right and there was this experiment that they performed where a computer did 
the Daisy Daisy song. You've heard that? I mean, yeah, that's, of that's, course. That's, that's out there. So that actually predated the movie. And that was kind of how that got fitted into the movie. But there was a lot of discussion about what was Hal going to sound like. And the initial, the early draft of the screenplay was that it was going to be a woman. And yes, the na- yes. The name, the name was Athena. Athena, right. Yeah. So that came out of uh, the FAA kind of flight control simulation uh, developments, which was they found out that male pilots would pay more attention to a female voice if it was an emergency announcement of some kind that said, flaps down, flaps down, flaps down. If it was a woman saying flaps down, the guy would pay attention. So that was kind of the inception of it being a female, uh, which was later abandoned. And I don't know if I've never heard about whether Stanley actually recorded a woman doing Hal's voice. Mm. I know that there was a moment where he was seriously considering having Marty Balsam do Hal's voice. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very real thing. I never heard any of the tests or whether he shot anything with with uh, Marty, but somewhere along the line, he remembered or it was reminded to him that Douglas Rain had done the narration for Universe. Right. And, of course, yeah, and, of and there was some there was something about Douglas Rain's voice, his his tonality and his kind of uh, what would you call it? You know, amorphous sexuality. Yeah. Uh, that that Kubrick felt would be the way that would make Hal work best because he was kind of, there was this kind of overall uh, intention to of dehumanization to a certain degree of all the characters in the movie that there was a kind of a NASA or FAA type voice uh, performance that was going to be unemotional purposefully unemotional right right that these that these astronauts would be so unflappable mm-hmm. and unemotional and unperturbable that that was kind of the orders that he gave to cure delay at gary lockwood x-ray delta one this is mission control roger you're two zero one three sorry you fellows are having a bit of trouble we are reviewing uh, telemetric information in our mission simulator and uh, will advise. Uh, Roger your plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo, a 3-5 unit, prior to failure. That was an actual air, uh, air traffic controller, a real air traffic controller, doing what he does. You know, it wasn't an actor. So there was a kind of a, an, an intention to create something that would be unemotional and unmelodramatic that pervades the whole movie actually i mean well the 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 tone of uh how being monotonal 
you know, in fact, perfectly seems to suit, you know, Doctors Bowman and Poole in terms of their being unflappable. It's almost as though if they have this third conscious entity during the long voyage that it would basically match the temperament and, and again, monotonality of, uh, you know, the two guys who are, you know, helming the mission. Well, it, 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 I think it was part of the kind of ongoing creative development of the whole movie mm. that was that Kubrick was managing. And by kind of dehumanizing the crew, uh, Gary Lockwood and Keir DeLay, left it open for you didn't Hal didn't have to become very emotional in order to be different from that, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so subtle word nuances and like when when Hal's doing his little psychological profile of Kier Delay's drawing and Kier accuses Hal of saying, Well you're doing yes. your you're doing your weekly makeup, aren't you? Yes, Hal? yeah, yeah. And Hal yeah. says, Well, yes I am. That's my job. You know, that's probably one of the most emotional moments that Hal has of kind of being caught, caught up or caught in the act. <laughs> Good evening, Dave. How you doing, Hal? Everything's running smoothly. And you? Well, not too bad. Have you been doing some more work? A few sketches. May I see them? Sure. That's a very nice rendering, Dave. I think you've improved a great deal. Can you hold it a bit closer? Sure. That's Dr. Hunter, isn't it? Mm-hmm. By the way, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. Well, forgive me for being so inquisitive, but during the past few weeks, I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Well, it's rather difficult to define. Perhaps I'm just projecting my own concern about it. I know I've never completely freed myself of the suspicion that there are some extremely odd things about this mission. I'm sure you'll agree there's some truth in what I say. Well, I don't know. That's a rather difficult question to answer. You don't mind talking about it, do you, Dave? Oh, not at all. Well, certainly no one could have been unaware of the very strange stories floating around before we left. Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. For instance, the way all our preparations were kept under such tight security, and the melodramatic touch of putting doctors Hunter, Kimball, and Kaminsky aboard, already in hibernation after four months of separate training on their own. You're working up your crew psychology report. Of course I am. Sorry about this. I know it's a bit silly. Just a moment. Just a moment. I've just picked up a fault in the AE-35 unit. You were in the UK working on the film for roughly three years, and, I mean, with a demanding workload. Wondering if it was your first time in England, and did you get any free time to ex explore? 
Oh, yeah. It was my first time in England, my first time anywhere in Europe. Um, and I did get time to explore. The, I think one of the unusual aspects of the production was that it was a British Union movie. Um, and it was made under a special agreement, an international movie production agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember the name of the the, the program, but um, it meant that the 1% of the budget could be spent on non-British employees. Okay. That was important to the whole movie. It was part of a tax incentive deal to get movies to come to shoot in England. Sure. So that was a starter. So I was one of those 1% people. And um, so was Keir DeLay and Gary Lockwood and and Kubrick himself and mm-hmm. you know a few others and Con Pedersen who joined the movie a little bit later. But um, that afforded an amazing amount of creative freedom that was unique in the sense that it's one of the stories that I can frankly tell, which was I was there trying to do some really unusual stuff for Kubrick. Hmm. You know, I was getting tasked to solve problems. Of course. That were, were of increasing complexity and challenge. And one of them was the Stargate itself. No one could figure out what the Stargate was going to be or what it should look like or anything. It wasn't even called the Stargate at the time. It right. was a slot. It was a slot in one of Jupiter's moons. Right, right. And it looked stupid. All the storyboard illustrations, we couldn't figure out how to possibly do that or build that or photograph that. And you might know that in earlier drafts of the movie, uh, both Keir DeLay and Gary Lockwood were going to go out in pods and explore this slot. And then they were they one of them was going to drop some flares and probes into the slot to see to, to to go ahead and kind of photograph it or measure it or whatever you know temperature readings or find out if it was dangerous you know like dropping a rock down a well um, mechanical re- the, reconnaissance yeah so that was one of the things that was in the script that went the went into the trash heap. Um, and I had a really interesting encounter with Kubrick one day, which had to do with the whole Stargate sequence that, that the part of the crew was in hibernation in those hibernaculums in the, in the centrifuge. And I was, I was kind of a precocious young wannabe filmmaker myself. And I was gaining trust from Kubrick every week, you know, because every, every week he would give me some new, more challenging thing to do. Like, you know, I did the animation and then I did the moon bus. And then that led to him saying, well, Doug, how would you like to photograph the moon bus? And I said, well, I've never done anything like that. And he said, well, you are now. <laughs> so, you know, so I, so I was tasked to go on the stage and rig the moon bus on a, on a rod so that it was hidden behind the moon bus and that it would have, jets of nitrogen gas coming out to stir up the dust on the moon and right right moon background to be shot at 72 frames a second this was all completely new to me but he was using me to kind of solve some problems and he said i want the the landing pad for the moon bus to be really brilliant and illuminate 
And I came up with this. I said, well, you know, we're using these projectors and we have these bulbs. Each one of these bulbs puts out like a thousand watts of light. Mm-hmm. And so what if we put these bulbs all around the perimeter of the landing pad for the moon bus to light up the landing pad? Because we're shooting at 72 frames a second, right, you want right. a lot of depth of field, so you're mm-hmm. going to stop the lens down. You're going to need as much light as you could possibly get. And so I'm going through my learning curve on it. He understands this, and he says, okay, you shoot it. And so suddenly, <laughs> I'm this young kid. I'm on the, I'm on the stage with the, with the miniature that I built shooting its landing. And so that was another stepping stone, okay? Wow. Yeah, of course. And so I, so this kind of thing was happening almost weekly, and he was giving me more and more responsibility and trusting me more and more to make it work. So one day, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm, I'm kind of watching this whole movie evolve, you know, because Kubrick is rewriting the script every day. And one day I had this kind of epiphany. I said, uh-oh, I think we have a problem because... And I'm thinking as a filmmaker, and I'm thinking, well, if Gary Lockwood and Kier Delay go off into the slot in the moon, what happens to the three guys that are left behind? Yeah. Okay, so I went to Kubrick's office, because I I had entree. I was welcome at his office. He kind of tolerated me and wanted to hear what I had to say. So I went in one day and said, Stanley, I think... They've got this problem. Why don't you just figure out how to kill off those other three guys? Wow. That was and your he idea. Looked me, he looked at me like I was the devil. <laughs> he said, Trumbull, go back to your office and pay attention to what you're supposed to do. You're bugging me. He got really pissed off. And the next day, he figured out how to kill the astronaut. Wow. So, wow. see, I don't, but so because of his outburst, I'll never know whether it was my idea or his idea, or he had already thought of it, and I'm just this precocious, stupid kid that, that's catching up. I don't know. Based on but, the reaction of his you describe, I'd say it's your idea, Doug. Well, I, I just don't know. I don't know if anybody ever will know. I, maybe his wife, Christiana, would know. Right. They were, you know. So anyway, that was one of the kind of stories of, of me beginning to feel my oats as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I ended up having to animate the demise of the three astronauts with the readouts over their hibernaculums of their life functions going critical and them dying. Mm-hmm. So that, that was my job, too. So I did that as well. Wow. And so I had to do a little study up on uh, heart rates and, uh, you know, cardiovascular function and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so I made these fake readouts of, the, of people dying and, yeah. and flatlining. Flatlining was, you know, kind of came out of that. So that was another one of my little uh, tasks. And then the the Stargate continued to be a an unresolved problem hmm. that no one could figure out what to do. Whether it was going to be kind of a light show, or you know, we were in the in the early in the mid '60s when mm-hmm. light shows and psychedelic lighting and flashing and everything was commonplace, right? For for music performances mm-hmm. and. And very much coming into and, vogue. Yeah, and so uh, I, I remember Tony Masters and Jeffrey Unsworth, who were you know both on the movie. Jeffrey was the cinematographer, and Tony was production designer. Of course, they built things like like wooden drums that were maybe a foot in diameter and three feet long with mirrors on them, mm-hmm. and they would spin the drums and shine lights on it and see if they could get some 
psychedelic effect. Sure. That would be somehow work for the Stargate. And it looks stupid. It wasn't <laughs> very wasn't very good at all. And you knew right away. But I had Yeah, you knew instantly that that wasn't going to solve the problem. Right. And then I had this epiphany one day when I realized that this technique that had been developed by John Whitney for some of the kind of psychedelic stuff into the moon and beyond might have some application if we did it differently. And the idea was that, that John Whitney was developing was he, he had like an animation photographic system that was similar to what we use for making the Hal readouts. And he would move artwork around backlit Mm-hmm. While the shutter, while the shutter on the camera remained open for several seconds, right. Interesting. So creating patterns, kind of psychedelic patterns of light, using moray patterns and things, uh, backlit mm-hmm. in long time exposures under controlled circumstances using these mechanical devices. Sure. And I thought, well, maybe we could make the Stargate using an adaptation of that and we could do it dimensionally rather than flat. We could do it in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of the lucky circumstances at the time was that on the animation stand, which was an Oxbury animation stand with a Mitchell camera, we had a rig on the animation stand to put a Polaroid camera right in front of the lens, looking at the artwork. Mm -hmm. So anytime we were going to animate something, I could shoot a Polaroid of it and send it to Stanley for approval. Gotcha. Because Polaroid photographs pervaded the entire production. Right, of course. And that's pretty well known now, but it was novel at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing that the Polaroid film was so reliable and sensitive that we could actually judge F numbers and see depth of field and do all kinds of things that were valuable kind of pre-vis ways of seeing a shot before committing to it. Mm, just working from the Polaroids. Just working from the Polaroids. And the, the Polaroids of the day, I don't know if you've ever taken Polaroid photographs. The, yep. You, you take the photograph and then you peel the covering off of it. And then you had to rub this fixative on it, a little kind of felt tip thing, thing with a little wet jar of fixative to, to make the Polaroids stop developing. And... Um, so that was pervading the whole production. Kubrick was almost never seen without a Polaroid camera in his hand. Yeah, yeah. And Kubrick was such that he never liked or could commit to anything, any lens or any shot or any lighting, until he saw a photograph of it. Yeah. It was really interesting phenomena with him, because he was a photographer. And so everything was shot with a Polaroid first. You know, any screen test or any... Uh, uh, costume test or any set test or whatever. There was Polaroids of everything. So anyway, I had this Polaroid camera on the animation stand. And I said, well, I could leave the shutter open on the Polaroid camera while I move the camera all the way from the very top right. down, down to the very bottom and stop the lens down to F32 so it's got massive depth of field Amazing. and back backlight some artwork and accumulate this deep exposure mm. You know, between the highest and the lowest, through a slit. That was my idea to make a, a wall of light. Right. Well, I want to get to the slit scan uh, momentarily, but uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, bits about this already. So, f- 
forgive me if any of this is redundant, but we we should ask about, you know, the other fellows on the special effects team that you worked with, um, you know, and, uh, you know, what we understand is, of course, you had all the resources available and the demanding schedule. Um, the stresses must have been enormous. Um, it, is it true that someone nicknamed uh, it the Sausage Factory? And if yes, why so? Okay, well, I'll, I'll take a step back from that question. I'll, I'll try to catch everything. First of all, we were talking earlier about the whole thing being very stressful. And in fact, it was stressful in that we were trying to do a lot in a short period of time, but we never knew what the short period of time was. I was told by Kubrick at the very beginning that I was expected to be on the movie for nine months. Mm -hmm. That just kept getting pushed off in the future forever and ever. So that was one thing. But secondly, we had normal hours. That's that's the the union thing I was right. alluding to. Right. You know, we would get there, we'd start work at like eight in the morning, and at five or six o'clock at night, we would go home. No overtime, no anything. Mm-hmm. Fairly normal five day shooting weeks, and weekends off. And in that respect, there wasn't a sense of like burning the midnight oil or working sixty hours a week or eighty hours a week or anything. Right. That's very common in the movie industry today. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was luxuriously slow. Mm. That's a nice way of putting it. So I didn't feel an enormous amount of pressure. And I realize in retrospect now that Kubrick was protecting everybody on the crew, including me, from Mm. the pressures of having to deliver the movie at any particular time. He was the buffer between us and the studio. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. And And it's really grateful for that. It, it's clear that, that yeah, that, that that you're grateful. And I mean, that would be, you know, any craftsman's dream to have that buffer. And it sounds to us like from other stuff, I'm sure we've all read that, uh, you know, he was very protective of the people, whether it was a small or a large crew. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with the, the, the special effects team that you were assembled with, I'm wondering uh, if you guys did any sort of cross-collaboration on any of your specific responsibilities? Well, here was the other thing I was, I was trying to get to, is that because of this union thing, and this program was called the ED program. I don't know what ED stood for, if it was an acronym, EDE or EDI, I don't have no idea. Hmm. But I could work in any category I wanted to on the studio lot, whereas all the British employees were rigidly restricted into their particular departments. Oh, wow. You know, if, you're, if you're in the engineering department, that was all you could do. You mm-hmm. better not ever ever touch paint or a shrub or a set or anything <laughs> else. You have to stick to your department. Or a monolith. Yeah, whatever. So Don't I touch could it. Ran, I could range around that studio like some kind of weird mascot <laughs> and do anything in any department. And they all thought this was tremendously cute because I wasn't threatening their jobs or taking work away from some union steward in the wood department or the engineering shop or the electrical department or the generating shop or the riggers or anything. They just thought that Trumbull is this cute California kid who's no threat. Right. So I, I could work anywhere in any department without hindrance at all, which was one of the main things that allowed me to develop myself as a as an artist. Of course. Because, I, because I'm an artist and engineer. My mother was an artist. My father was an engineer. And 
those skills came in really handy on a movie like 2001. Sure. I, I can imagine that must have been, having that carte blanche must have been, you know, joyous for you to say the least. It was, it was fabulous. You know, I didn't, I, I only really recognize it in retrospect because it was just an everyday thing at the time. Mm. But now that I look back on what I've been through in Hollywood and the experience that I've had at studios, mm-hmm. I realize in retrospect that it was really quite a luxury to have that creative freedom imbued by, you know, sanctioned by Stanley Kubrick to mm-hmm. do whatever I wanted because um, it was, we were breaking new ground at every turn. Sure. And so, so the little Polaroid I shot, for example, of the Stargate for Stanley, it really was a Polaroid of a piece of artwork from this other thing that was on the iPad on the table, which was the BBC World Tonight. Yes, of course. And so it was the BBC World Tonight in the Stargate. <laughs> it just happened to be a piece of artwork I had. And I took this Polaroid down to Stanley's office, and it was still wet with fixative. And I put it on his desk, and I said, I think we could use this to make the Stargate. Hmm. And he's looking at this Polaroid, and he has this big kind of aha moment. Right. He says, I think you're right. Mm. You know, what do you need? I said, well, I'm not sure, but I think I need to build a big device. Yeah, and I mean, gonna- you said you realized that the slit scan needed to be, you know, and I quote, the size of a house. Yeah. So, so given the cost and the time implications, of course, you had some freedom there. Um, was it nonetheless daunting to ask Kubrick, you know, to accept your idea? Well... I don't know. It's just something about my personality that I, 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 I have this kind of fearless nature Mm. and I don't, I really don't know where it came from and I don't know why I'm the way I am, but (laughs) you know, my mother died when I was seven years old Mm. and I was really left to my own devices and I became almost a street kid Mm. when I was, when I was very young and just barely survived, you know, the third grade. Mm. Um, so Whatever is in, in the nature of my personality, I was just always a combination of fearless and confident that I that some idea I had actually made sense to me and would probably work. Hmm. That there wasn't a very high degree of risk attended to some ideas I had. I said, "Well, I think I've done this before, and I've seen other people do it before, and I think if we use it this way and use this." motor and this lens and this piece of glass and this whatever it'll work i would i was absolutely confident that it would work but the what it required to pull it off was very complicated Hmm. and building the slit scan machine was something i had never done before but i had done uh as a young early filmmaker you know i because i had a another guy at graphic films his name was ben jackson who worked very closely side by side with con Pedersen, mm-hmm. and the whole idea of building miniatures out of rocks and sand and gravel for the universe film which i had heard about from wally gentleman seemed natural to me and so that led to the lunar landscapes and things like that and then making mechanical devices seemed natural to me because that's what John Whitney had been doing for some of the animation for to the moon and beyond. Right. And the photography for, for to the moon and beyond included some really weird optical effects and things that were done by Jim Dixon, 
who subsequently came and worked with us on 2001, who was the animation cameraman at Graphic Films. And so all these things were coalescing in my mind that they were possible and doable and feasible. And um, it required me to make big leaps of faith. And I would say, well, you know, the animation stand was how we did this Polaroid. But what we need to do is scale up by a factor of 10. We need to make a device that's not vertical. It's going to, have to be horizontal because the camera is going to need to move 15 or 20 feet, not two feet. Right. You know, it's just a scale issue. Mm-hmm. And I explained that to Kubrick and he said, just do whatever you need. Just <laughs> tell me what you need and we'll do it. <laughs> it was amazing, really, truly amazing to have you know, that kind of freedom. Sure. So one thing I needed was because I had a kind of an intuitive sense about engineering because I'd spent so many years in my father's workshop mm-hmm. that uh, we needed what what's called a ball screw. This is a or, or lead screw. It's just a threaded rod okay. that, that spins. And the, I would use that to drive the camera from one end of the track to the oh, other. Oh, okay, got it. Yes, I've seen okay. uh, illustrations of that, sure. Yeah, and those didn't exist. We didn't have anything like that then. And but, you, I was, but you knew how to make it. Well, I knew how to get it. I, <laughs> I talked to Wally Vivers, who was this genius kind of mechanical engineer guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, they make things like that at the Saginaw ball screw factory in Detroit <laughs> for machines. Sure. I said, well, how do we get one? And he says, well, I think they make them in 20-foot lengths, and they're about an inch and a half in diameter, and they weigh about 150 pounds, and we're going to have to get one air freighted here from the u.s wow kind of thing yeah and i said okay but wally whatever you say if that's going to work let's get one <laughs> and so we did and kubrick you know greenlit it and wally was in charge of rigging all the mechanical camera tracks and wheels and dollies and motors and so i was going through a big learning curve with how to interconnect one motor and one pulley and one gear and one shaft and I had been doing a lot of that on the animation. So it was a matter of scaling it up mm. to a bigger and bigger device to do the Stargate. But I imagine that's where your background as an engineer came into play very much. Yeah. So, Well, engineering as well as electronics. I knew a lot about relays and wires mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, motors and things like that. And I had learned a lot from Ben Jackson and Con Pedersen before that. And so I was kind of fearless that you could connect all these things together with pulleys and uh, switches and timers and things and make this device, which was really a cool piece of machinery that was all off-the-shelf components. And one of the components that became an important and integral part of the engineering was time. And I can explain that by saying that I realized that if you had a – if you had – a motor that could move something from point A on a shaft to point B on a shaft, that it would have a certain rotational speed and you would only have the motor on for like a second to move to do the movement. Okay. Okay. And I'd have to do that over and over and over thousands of times Mm. to to animate the Stargate, for example. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I came up with the idea of controlling all the motors with darkroom timers Oh, okay, right, right. A darkroom timer was a device of the day, which was like a an alarm clock for switches. Sure. 
you could set it for a 10 second exposure mm -hmm. of your dark of your larger lamp and a certain exposure. I use it to drive a motor as well. And so I would have multiple darkroom timers controlling the slit scan machine for the Stargate and using one timer to control another timer. So every exposure would be exactly the same period of time, but with an added period of time to each frame. If you understand that would yep. increment the artwork that would increment the artwork each frame so that there'd be a sense of motion. Sure. And I'm automated all that with relays and darkroom timers. Incredible. And got this thing running and you know, it didn't always work perfectly. Sometimes it went crazy and the camera crashed through the glass and things like that. But <laughs> all in all, it ran all day long, every day, you know, 24 hours a day for weeks. Wow. Shooting, shooting the Stargate sequence. So, you know, Kubrick made sure we found a room that we could use. We occupy this entire room upstairs in the mm -hmm. animation building and set up this machine and got it running. It was really noisy and, the result was just stunningly beautiful, and he knew for sure that that was going to be the Stargate. And yeah. he, so I was in charge of the whole Stargate artwork development and the artists doing the paste-up of the artwork, which was all kind of an, ex, ex, uh, an extension of what we did for the, the uh, readouts of weird graphs and patterns and op art and mm -hmm. textures and electron microscope photographs and colored gels and all pasted onto giant sheets of, of uh, plastic and then taped to a big sheet of glass that moved behind the slit. Right, right. So was one thing led to another, led to another, and it all made perfect sense to me, and it actually worked. And It's fascinating. I, I, I get asked periodically. I, I'm here at the Museum of the Moving Image, and they have this beautiful exhibit on right now about the making of 2001. Yes. And they said, well, what could we show that would show – visitors to the museum, how all this stuff worked. I said, well, I can actually build you a slit scan machine and we could have it there running. What? And well, you know, it's not, it's not impossible. It could be done, but it's like way outside the budget of a museum. Mm. It's yeah. not, a, they don't have a movie budget. They have <laughs> right. a museum. Budget. Right, right, right. So that never happened, but it's actually feasible. Oh my gosh. That's, that's and then, and then, and then almost criminal to think that it, they couldn't make it happen. But uh, go on, yeah, sorry. You know, maybe maybe someday we will. I don't know. Have you ever uh, thought about but, presenting your offer to uh, the traveling exhibition? No, no, I don't. I don't really have any connection to the traveling exhibition. I don't know what they're doing, but I, I don't think there's much money available to do exotic things like this for a museum situation. Mm -hmm. yes. it, it's been it's been a, a lifelong hope of mine to be able to do something of my work in an art museum i just think it would be really fun to have a permanent would, installation of sorts well, it could be permanent or semi-permanent or a traveling show or whatever but i think it's possible to make a show about what i do which is not painting not sculpture it's not op art it's something else it's my art form but it's right. weird and it's different from anybody else's but it's kind of fascinating to watch how well, it works it's i mean you're selling yourself short it's been extraordinarily influential on countless you know if not the entirety of you know most science fiction that's followed since and you know i'm going to get to blade runner later but that 
film itself birthed, you know, what's called the cyberpunk genre. Yeah. And that all comes out of your work and, and your mind. And like you said, you know, it is your artwork. I, I would love to see, and if there's any way we could help promote uh, an exhibition of your work, I think the world needs that, frankly. I'd love to do it. It'd be terrific. It'd be a wonderful opportunity. Um, so I, there's a question at the end here, Doug. Um, but since we're talking about the Stargate, uh, I want to reference um, Kubrick's biographer, Vincent Labruto. Uh, yeah. he, he described the, the Stargate sequence as, and I quote, vivid high-speed space travel with hints of psychedelic colors. The conglomeration of cinematic chemistry was unprecedented in commercial filmmaking and only hinted at in experimental films, end quote. So my question is, did you feel at the time that you were making an experimental film? And if so, were you, how were you encouraged to create new inventions specifically for the Stargate? Um, yeah, I think we all knew that we were making an experimental film and that this whole project of doing this movie was a big R&D program mm -hmm. and that everything was a new challenge and needed a new look and a new solution. And that's what turned out. I was just the right guy in the right place at the right time. Mm. And uh, I was doing stuff that no one else on the movie was doing and no one else has done in the 50 years since then, except I do it occasionally from movie to movie. Mm -hmm. But, um, one of the things that I've come to realize in the, in the time since we did it was that the component of time, which I was saying before, which had to do with, you know, darkroom timers, things like that, mm. was actually appropriate because Vincent's description of the Stargate is a little off base, in my opinion. Okay. Because it's not going through space. It's going right. through time. It's going through time. It's going through dimension. Yes. And so I think, I mean, there's a lot of things you can read these days about the idea of a multidimensional mm -hmm. universe, mm -hmm. a multiverse, a multiverse. Of, of different planes of existence mm -hmm. or different planes of energy or whatever. And I was thinking about that consciously when I was doing the Stargate, that I wanted to take on the responsibility of breaking through space and time for this movie mm. in a really abstract way that did several things. A- it looks like you're going somewhere. B, it's completely psychedelic and pure light. It's There's no physicality to mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And C, um, uh, there's this component of time. And there was this really important shot that Kubrick shot. It ha I had nothing to do with this particular shot. But you remember, it happens right at the beginning of the Stargate. And it's a close-up of Keir DeLay. And that shot is one of the most important shots in the movie, and very few people ever talk about it. But here it is. You've got Keir DeLay in a close-up, and the camera's rolling, and everything seems to be normal. And what's actually going on is that Keir DeLay is being shaken by some grips or something, mm -hmm. you know, subjected to some kind of turbulence. Right. And he's, he's, he's wide-eyed, and freaked out and the camera speed is slowly being changed from 24 frames a second to one frame every two or three seconds oh 
and the blurring is starting to accumulate and they're compensating the exposure of the camera in exact synchronism with the frame rate so that the exposure remains constant. Holy okay, so the lens is so the lens is stopping down. So Kubrick and Jeff Unsworth and everybody worked all this out. I had nothing to do with it. Mm. But that that shot is the shot that ramps time and space into one shot. The fusion, the synergy, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So it intercuts perfectly with the Stargate, where Kier starts blurring mm-hmm. and sh- and shaking and screaming. Yeah, right, right. And you know he's wide-eyed and horrified at what he's seeing, uh, but the fact that the frame rate of the movie is changing from standard to another dimension by accumulating exposures of time yeah. and blur was genius. It is incredible. And, and, and it tells the whole story right there in one shot. And and Kier was in fact you know being shaken by grips and like what they used to call poor man's process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I'm going to make a point of going back and just watching that short shot. Um, incredible. I, I wanted to uh, ask you, of course, you've done your job. You uh, leave with a satisfied mind, as they say, but you're wondering what the uh, result is going to be. And there, of course, came a time when you got to see Kubrick's finished film. Uh, yeah. can, you, can you tell our listeners uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was it was it was mind-boggling and interesting. But I was so um, intimately involved in the making of the movie right up to the last minute. Luckiest guy on earth. Now, in retrospect, I was with Stanley Kubrick, and he would say, and he he would hold up this doll of a you know a child's doll. And say, Doug, what do you think about the idea that Cure Delay ch- turns into a star child? Hmm. <laughs> He's asking me. I'm twenty. I'm twenty three years old. He says, asking me. So, holy moly, what am I? You know, am I, what, how am I supposed to answer this, or is it okay? And I've just felt like, you know, the precocious Doug just says, "Sounds good to me, Stanley. Let's do it." <laughs> uh, you know, so it led to him, you know, going ahead and commissioning. Uh, this sculptor, sculptress woman, to make a embryo of Cure Delay, which was based on the in vitro, or what do you call it, uh, in utero in photographs utero. Yeah. of a Dutch photographer whose name escapes me right now, pretty famous Life magazine article that we all saw of embryos mm-hmm. in the uterus photographed through this. Um, fiber optic lens system or something Mm. really beautiful stuff um i'll I'll, I'll think of his name in a minute that's okay anyhow that that's what inspired that sequence was this whole idea of rebirth and renewal and um and it actually looks like cure delay yes it does yes pretty wild pretty wild idea and then it had to be lit and photographed in such a way that it was um, luminous and magical, mm-hmm. and 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 was actually an embryo. I painted the 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 uh, placenta. This ovoid placenta was an airbrush painting I did around the star child. Right, and that was photographed on the animation stand with lots of gauze and filters and things to create this 
magical, overexposed star child scene that fit into the movie. I believe uh, Stephen has the name. There it is. It was Leonard, Leonard Nelson. Leonard That's Nelson. correct. Leonard Nelson. That's correct. You got him. That's him. Yeah. So that became the template for uh, what the sculptress and uh, yourself worked from. Yeah. His his original photography. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, well, you know, I was lucky enough to bump into you at Museum of the Moving Image, um, where we had our first conversation, and uh, it was, you know, surreal is too strong a word, but there we were, you know, with the original Starchild model, and uh, I managed to get this one really cool photo of Katharina taking a photo on her iPhone of right. the Starchild, and I'll send it to you, but... Um, it's just amazing how well that thing's holding up. Yeah, I, 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 my, my guess is that the, that Star Child in the museum is actually a copy. You, you believe uh, so? I, I only. Asked. It didn't. Look, it didn't look quite right to me. Um, it just. It may be the real Star Child, but I think it was made from a mold. Hmm. And it might be a copy of the real thing. It just looked like not quite right. Mm. I was pretty familiar with it. Yeah, I was going to say, we'll take your word for it in that case. I do believe they said it was the original or some... It, some... it, it, it might be. I don't know. So, you know, when you put a coat of paint on something, it, it y- wrecks it. Yes, I was going to suggest that uh, as well. I mean, we spoke with uh, Mike Scott, who did the uh, red uh, EVA suit and helmet, and he right. talked about having... Uh, his his encounter with the original and having to reveal numerous uh, layers of paint that someone had done over it, you yeah. know, much to his uh, shock and horror, so to speak. Yeah, right. But um, with the the Star Child and so forth being uh, touched upon, you know, we want to ask you about your own directorial debut from 1971, of course, Silent Running, which. Uh, right. You mentioned before, you know, this this is an amazing film and, of course, space-based, and you did make it not long after 2001. Okay, now let's roll this mother. Little down, picture. You're in the hallway. Fine. Okay. Perfect, Larry. Yeah. We ready? You know your move, okay, Cheryl? All right, now can we please have it quiet? You want to take a little bit one piece a little bit slower, because... As soon as he taps him, we got to start loosening up. Because as soon as we start loosening up, Bruce is going to come in the door. The director, Douglas Trumbull, is 29 years old. Five years ago, he was a special effects man for Stanley Kubrick on 2001, A Space Odyssey. Now he's directing his first feature film, a space adventure called Silent Running. Silent Running? Well, it's, uh, it's hard to trace. Something I was thinking about when I was working on 2001. I wanted to make a science fiction movie. I wanted to say something about the future that would be very much human and very real. But I wanted to take the sterility and the mechanization out of it. And I'd like to say, okay, 100 years from now, people aren't going to be very different. They're still going to be, you know, sort of funky people. They're all over the place. I don't think that uh, astronauts necessarily have to be automatons. I don't think they have to be emotionless. Do you want to cover it the same way? Do you want to pick I think we want to, want to cover it the same way, but I think we want to try it one more time. Okay. It's a little bit too much constant, you know. The, the beautiful thing you did when you were in there, when you were part of, you know, C-A-R-D-S tonight. Yeah! And you Hi. came in, you know, and we should really get some some more of a thing happening here. A lot of people considered that the next major space movie after 2001. So our question is, 
you know, an obvious one. Did 2001 inspire you to make Silent Running? And, um, you know, were there any ideas that you implemented from your earlier work in making your first feature film? Well, yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, coming back to Hollywood, uh, having worked on 2001 was a really great calling card, a, a legitimizing calling card that, you know, got me into doors that I would have otherwise never gotten into. But I did feel by the end of 2001, I was so exhausted by Stanley Kubrick's demanding uh, workload and expectations and complicated nature. I mean, Kubrick was a very complicated person, not mm -hmm. always easy to get along with. You had mm -hmm. to be super tolerant mm -hmm. and forgiving to, mm -hmm. to get through it, which I was. Mm -hmm. I loved the man. I thought he was a major genius. And so I didn't have nearly the uh, <clears throat> uh, attitude that a lot of other people had who were more conventional filmmaker types who had worked on a lot of movies. They had no idea why this was taking so damn long and why their careers were being stalled. And <laughs> they just wanted to get the hell out of there and right, go do right, something else. Right. You know, so there was, there was a certain sense of despair and antagonism at the end of the movie that I didn't share. I just mm. felt I was just the luckiest guy on earth. Sure. But, but I also wanted to be my own man. I was really feeling my oats and I was really feeling like I could do a lot of that stuff myself. I didn't think that writing the script or directing actors was that, that daunting actually. Mm -hmm. And I had to figure out how to do something that would be a fraction of the cost of that movie, but benefit from everything I'd learned on the movie. So uh, I, it was like an independent movie, Silent Running. And I was really lucky that I fell into this one-of-a-kind situation. When, I, when I, was, I went back to L.A., I started my own little company. I was doing you know, television commercials and, and visual effects and stuff just to make a living and adapting a lot of the stuff I'd learned with our little animation stand and photographing miniatures and stuff that I was doing for airline commercials and, sure. you know, stuff like that, mm -hmm. Clairol hair, <laughs> <laughs> shampoo and stuff like that. But that was boring. But I had ideas for science fiction, and I was developing relationships with people in L.A., and one of them was Mike Gruskoff. I'm Mike Gruskoff, producer of Silent Running. Making a film like Silent Running is an enormous undertaking because we only had a million dollars to make it with. We needed to modify the aircraft carrier to look like a space freighter. We needed the robotic section of the film, but it's like a military operation, if you want to call it that. The most important thing is getting good people and letting them make their own decisions. And he told me about this program that was being started at Universal Studios, which was a, an outfall of their shock at Easy Rider that uh, Peter Fonda had made mm. on a mi microscopic yeah. budget, yeah. independent movie, completely out of the blue. Yeah. And, it, and it shocked everybody in Hollywood that independent filmmakers not supported by a major studio could make a profitable movie. Mm. Mm -hmm. This was a complete anomaly. Right. And uh, so Sid Scheinberg and Lou Wasserman, who were running Universal, decided to do this weird social experiment I call it that for lack of a better description. They said, they said <coughs> let's just make five low-budget movies 
that for all intents and purposes are independent productions, mm -hmm. even though we're paying for it. <clears throat> but as long as they're a million dollars each or less, we'll stay out of it. We will not play our role as a studio. Mm. We'll let the independent artists have their way and do whatever they want, as long as they stay on budget and on schedule. Right. And so Silent Running was one of five movies. And uh, I can't remember. One of them was a Kurt Vonnegut movie. One of them was The Last Picture Show. Oh, wow. Okay. Movie. Sure, sure. There, I've got a list of it. I just don't have it in front of me right now. But I was really lucky to have this opportunity to make a $1 million movie and do anything I wanted, any way I wanted, mm. non-union, didn't matter, just stay on budget and do it. And I knew Mike Ruskoff through a friendship. And Mike Ruskoff was personally friendly with management at Universal Studios who were setting up this program. So my first film was Silent Running, and they didn't read the script. They didn't come to the set. No one told me what to do or who to cast or how mm -hmm. to shoot or how to edit or anything. Mm -hmm. I, was, I had no clue what I was getting in for. And I had been, you know, in film school with Stanley Kubrick. And I'm watching what he's doing and learning, you know, every day what's going on. And the most daunting part of Silent Running was dealing with actors. I, that was com I was completely clueless about how you do that. And that was one of my rationales for the nature of the story was to come up with a story that had very few characters in it. And robots. The drones. In the story, their job is to relieve humans of boring routine maintenance on the spaceship. In science fiction, robots have often been the bad guys. Malevolent, semi-human contraptions, sneakily computing ways to take over. But Doug Trumbull wanted to show that these man-made devices are only what they're made, and absolutely under human control. It was just kind of my take on doing something that would be much more humanistic, because sure, I was yes. react I was reacting to the kind of cold, unemotional nature of 2001. I said, "Well, why can't we? What's wrong with emotions? Why can't we?" relate to a machine in a warm, warm and friendly, loving way. And so I came up with this whole idea about the drones. And my idea about the drones came from seeing Todd Browning's movie, The Freaks. Oh, my gosh. I love that movie. Terrific movie. One of my absolute favorites, Doug. Yeah. And so in this movie was Johnny Eck, who was the legless yes, guy yep, in Tuxedo. Yep. yep. And I thought, this is the one of the most appealing characters I've ever seen in a movie. But if you put him in a robot suit and you couldn't tell it was a human being it would be the illusion of all time the idea was to find a human being that you could deal with as an actor but that wouldn't be necessarily shaped like a human being you know why just put a big plastic or rubber suit over a man and say that's a robot do something that 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 defies an audience's capability to understand how it was done you, know, you wanted to totally be non-anthropomorphic in appearance. No face, no eyes, nothing that's glaring out, nothing that's necessarily symmetrical like a human being. The working robot models that, that we use in the picture are the prototypes. In that uh, we did a lot of drawings, a lot of visualizations of what we wanted. But when on paper we got to a point where the shape was right, that we could see that the shape was going to work the way we wanted, we just started making molds out of 
out of uh, wood and vacuum forming styrene plastic over the wooden molds and fitting them together and making the design in such a way that it could be altered to fit each individual person inside. And so that was the inception of Silent Running, which was based on the idea of having a man with drone robots on a spacecraft. And the, the original story was about alien contact. Mm -hmm. And that whole idea went by the wayside. No one would get their head around that. And uh, there was a lot of relationship building at the time. I was a young guy, and um, Gruskoff, you know, wanted to try to bring in, you know, good talented capable writers mm -hmm. and so we were very lucky to have three terrific writers contributing to the story development and one was mike chimino you know of deer course hunter deer fan. hunter yeah absolutely it's great one was steve botchko who uh -huh. went on to do you know, hugely successful Blues. tv shows yeah yeah right and then Derek washburn who uh, uh had written deer hunter mm -hmm. and um they contributed they each contributed different drafts of the screenplay for silent running based on my treatment none of which con included any co alien contact whatsoever i find that i'm getting a terrific amount of satisfaction out of directing because it's quite a bit different from what i came up through in that i started out as an illustrator painting things and when you're painting something you get a lot of very personal direct satisfaction out of that and when you're directing a movie, you're getting a different kind of satisfaction. You're controlling an art form, but it's an art form that's out of your hands, where you have to trust to the capabilities of a great number of people. It's, I think it's the most logistically complex art form that there is. Were you able to see any of Stanley's subsequent films in their early release? And if so, you know, what did you think of them? Any particular favorites? And as a follow-up, what was your opinion of Spielberg's AI? Um, I'm going to be a little cautious about what I say about Spielberg or Kubrick because uh, I don't think directors should comment on other directors' works. But uh, in general, I would say I had such a unique perspective on Stanley Kubrick that when he did uh, Barry, he did Barry Lyndon. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I went out to see the movie at the Cinerama Dome Theater. You know, probably during the day on a week on a weekday or something, a Tuesday or whatever. There's hardly anybody there, and I didn't know much about the movie except that I knew John Alcott, who worked on 2001, shot the movie. I'd heard these stories about Kubrick being difficult and demanding and get, trying to get this particular look for the movie, uh, which he did. And I'm just laughing my head off because I know about Stanley Kubrick's weird sense of humor. <laughs> And sure. other people in the theater saying, shut up. <laughs> it's not funny. But I knew it was funny. And so I had my own kind of insider take on Barry Lyndon. Right, right. And then and then he did Full Metal Jacket. Which, the, sh the Shining in between. And then The Shining in between, yeah. So um, I don't know. These movies are... Every one of Kubrick's movies is a standalone, unique, one-of-a-kind yes, yes. master, masterpiece for any number of reasons. But I was only distantly connected with Stanley Kubrick over those years. We had this weird background problem uh, that was going on during those years. And the problem was that because of 2001 and my association with him in the movie – 
I would do an interview with some trade rag or something about the movie. And then the writer would write in this article, Doug Trumbull, who did the special effects for 2001, oh, boy. Blah, 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 would just really piss Kubrick off. And he mm-hmm. would call me on the phone in the middle of the night and say, you never said, you know, you shouldn't say that. I said, I didn't say that, Stanley. Oh, I, I always give credit to everybody else. So I've never said that, and I've never taken that credit. And, it, and he just got increasingly pissed off because it kept happening. Mm. Writers. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the thing that you we started out on this call when you were saying, you know, my father who did the right. special effects that occurred was to me. Boss, yeah. was completely inaccurate. Right. And I, I try to straighten out the record. Well, I and, feel bad uh, having posed the question that way. I had very no, little. No, that's okay. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. It just not, doesn't phase me at all. I'm just saying that it's one of the things that happens and it created this rift between me and Stanley. He got so pissed off one time that he actually took out a full page ad at variety telling the world that Doug Trumbull didn't do all the special effects in 2001. Yeah, I believe I've heard about that. And you know, I just had to shut up and stop engaging with him about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that was that. So I'm just watching these movies from afar, but I'm also, forming some of my own thoughts about it. And like, I knew that uh, Full Metal Jacket was trying to, you know, it was a movie about the Vietnam War, which was very uh, evident in my life when I was working for Stanley, because the U.S. government tried to draft me while I was working on 2001. And that's written about by uh, Michael Benson in his book. Yes, yes. Anyhow, uh, I felt that one of the things that was going on that I found was kind of disturbing was that Stanley, during the making of 2001, just he didn't like to fly in airplanes. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was a story that I heard, and so he brought Africa to the studio, right, uh, for the Dawn of Man sequence, right, which was genius I and mean, it was really beautifully done. You know, it was true that you couldn't have shot that sequence in Africa for real, right. And then, then he tried to bring Vietnam to the studio, and I thought the movie kind of slid off, of course, hmm. just trying to have palm, palm trees and napalm and stuff in England hmm. just kind of didn't, didn't work. There was something flawed about the movie, mm-hmm. just didn't look right to me. And the only time I ever encountered Steven Spielberg when it came to AI, for example, was that I knew this background story was going on, that they were talking about AI, and that uh, if you read Michael Benson's book, you would know that I was at Stanley Kubrick's uh, burial. And, and, and so, so Steven Spielberg was there, and uh, um, you know, with a lot of people associated with Eyes Wide Shut were there, the cast and the crew members, and... Um, you can imagine what's going on. Yeah. And, and I kind of knew that this through the grapevine, that this, uh, AI project was in play and that Steven Spielberg was, a, was going to pick it up and run with it and had made a deal to acquire the rights or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was amazing. Uh, you enjoyed, also- you enjoyed the film. Oh, sure. But I wanted to know what Kubrick would have done with it. Yeah. Yeah. That is the, uh, eternal question. Because he was, you know, Stanley was a utterly unique filmmaker mm-hmm. and a genius. 
and uh, you know, some of his stuff just never came to fruition. I thought it was really tragic that he died so unexpectedly and didn't even live to 2001. Yeah, that's occurred to all of us, I think, who were around at the time. I mean, I, I'm old enough, and Stephen and James, you know, we're all, you know, have our stories about, you know, the moment we heard, the day we heard, I can remember exactly where I was and so forth. Um, and it, it did seem at the time, one of my first thoughts was, you know, too young. I mean, the earliest uh, obituaries that they were reading on the network news, you know, mentioned his name, of course, but, you know, I just remember thinking, you know, 70 was too young for him. Um, so I'm wondering if you recall, or if you're willing to share, like, where were you when you heard and, uh, you know, how did you process that? I don't remember how I got word that Stanley had died, but I knew immediately that I had to be there. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately contacted Christiana. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember whether it's through an intermediary or whatever, but I said, I really hope it's okay with you because I want to come to the memorial. Because mm. I knew it was going to happen within two days or something. And so mm -hmm. I immediately got myself a, a quickie plane reservation on Virgin Atlantic or something and mm -hmm. flew to London. I just knew I just had to be there. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know why, but it just felt it was one of the most important things in my life. And I'd had a really wonderful moment with Stanley several years before that because of this rift that happened between us over this taking credit for the movie and which was a two-way rift because he took credit for the movie and uh, or the visual effects for the movie and in, in the final days of working on the movie uh, I knew that there was one empty title card that we didn't know what was going to say and it was somehow secret and so I didn't pay any attention. I was not really worried about it. But I found out later that after I departed and went back to L.A., that title card said special photographic effects designed and directed by Stanley Kubrick, mm. which was unfair and untrue. Mm -hmm. And that further pissed me off. Yeah. Yeah. And so I lived with that for a couple of years. And then I finally decided, well, I'm going to just. I'm going to cold call Stanley Kubrick one more time. <laughs> and I did. I, I, I got Stanley on the phone. I said, Stanley, I just want to thank you for totally changing my life. Oh, wow. I, working for you was mind-boggling, and I'm so appreciative. I just want to thank you. That's all I have to say is it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. It changed my career. It changed my nature as a human being. Hmm. And... He listened to me for a while and said, that's great. Thank you so much for calling. And that was kind of that. But that was the last time I talked to him before he died. Wow. And I was so glad that I did that. That's and beautiful. And so it kind of, kind of you know, it, it closed the book on a troubling time that I had with him. Yes. Yeah. So. Uh, that's a beautiful just, story. I, yeah. And then if you read uh, Michael Benson's book, I tell the story of memorial because i was there and and uh you know all those big wigs are there and, mm -hmm. um everybody you know has their say i didn't say anything i wasn't invited to say anything i was just a witness to the to the burial and um mm -hmm. so stanley was laid to rest his casket was lowered down into the grave mm 
mm-hmm. in, inside a big tent in, mm-hmm. right at their home. And everybody left the tent to go into the house to have dinner or drinks or whatever. And I went into the house briefly and I said, this is just not the place for me. I don't feel like I'm part of this whole thing. And, uh, and I saw my Academy Award in the corner of the room <laughs> for best photographic effects. Oh, okay. I'm gonna. Now I've seen it. Now I'm. Uh, I'm okay with that. Yeah. And and I went back out to the tent, and I was the only person there. Oh, wow. So I was alone with Stanley Kubrick in his own grave. Wow. And I and I and I talked to him. That's what I told Michael Benson in the book. And I got a few more things off my chest that I wanted to say to Stanley Kubrick. Um, and my gratefulness to him for changing my life. For our listeners that haven't had the chance to read Michael Benson's book, we all have, but um, are you comfortable sharing any of the things you said to Stanley uh, when sure. you were alone? I'm, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I, it's, well, you mean right now? <laughs> it, well, if, pretty much, it's in the book, but I just, I just, I just think <laughs> it's important to say that I feel like I'm the last person to talk to Stanley Kubrick, even oh, though he's, wow you know, deader than a doornail and he's six feet underground, mm. but I'm alone with him while everybody else is cavorting and having dinner. Mm. I just felt it was a moment of reflection on my encounter with this amazing guy. Yes. So, um, it was really a, a, an important moment to me and important to me to do. And it was, it was really kind of, not that I planned it, but it was a, uh, a culmination of why I flew there mm-hmm. and was part of that event. That that that's very touching. You know, words are failing me, but that's that's beautiful, and we couldn't be more grateful that you're sharing that uh, story with us. It it really is um, just just very heartfelt, and and thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Just. I, I I'm a pretty straight person, Not, and uh, yeah. I just have my own way of doing things. And I feel like, you know, one of the things that we could touch on more if we carry on with any more of this conversation is that uh, I feel uh, a very I'm an outcast and an outlier in the movie industry because mm. what I do is so damn weird <laughs> and so hard to understand, mm. and it's very hard to feel appreciated mm-hmm. for what I've done. And I was doing this presentation here earlier today about Star Trek and talking about an interview I did with a German television crew yesterday about Blade Runner mm-hmm. and them asking me, they said, well, we're going to ask you, what is it that you do that brings something special to these movies? And I said, well, I was going to ask you the same question. (laughs) (laughs) And that's classic Doug Trumbull right there. Yeah, so they said, well, no, we're going to ask you. And I said, well, okay, I'll do my best, and I'll try to, you know, wing something for you guys. But it's hard to put my finger on, you know, being my own promoter or being my own agent Mm, or mm -hmm. saying I'm such and such or I do this or that or whatever, But uh, because it's very uncomfortable for me. But what I did say and what I said today about Star Trek, for instance, is I try to make a difference. Mm. I try to take something that would otherwise be an ordinary movie and make it extraordinary. Yes, yes. By raising the bar and going the extra mile 
and trying to bring something to each of the films that I work on that you've never seen before in your life and that's totally unexpected. You do, you've, the, you've done that, and you do. You do, Doug. You really do. Well, I try, but, you know, I don't get calls from anybody in Hollywood anymore, ever, about anything. Hmm. To direct a movie or write a script or to do visual effects or anything. It's like I left the planet and they it's, don't know. It's criminal. It's really weird for me and it's very disturbing. I'm just trying to continue to play a role in this this present thing that I'm doing is extremely I'm one of the only people that really knows how to transform the entire movie industry to a new level of epic spectacle mm-hmm. by changing the changing the frame rate changing the resolution mm-hmm. changing the design of theaters you know i was a principal in taking imax public mm-hmm. back in 1994 which yep. very few people know yep. i brought imax into the mainstream and i and i made me even more fearless or less fearful about changing the movie industry because that became the birth of what we call premium large format cinemas, mm-hmm. whether it's IMAX or someone of this brand name of the same thing. It's 4K digital cinema. Right. And the thing I'm doing now, which is higher frame rates and immersive spectacle on deeply curved screens that are even better than Cinerama or IMAX or anything anyone's ever seen and better than 70 millimeter ever was wow. in its greatest hour. That there's a way there's a way to make a new kind of movie experience right now. Do you think that, there's a misconception about about what computers can do and maybe yeah. oh, what yeah. was old yeah. school or something like that? Yeah. And it's it's actually dumbly elegantly simple. <laughs> because I've discovered that the nature of movies, which is basically mechanical, it's photographic, but it's mechanical. You know, you have a you have a, a film that's running sprocketed celluloid film through the gate, but it has to stop the film while the shutter opens mm-hmm. and then yep. close the shutter and yep. advance the film to the next frame. It's a mechanical device with pins and claws and stuff in the camera. Mm-hmm. And so half the time the shutter is open and half the time the shutter is closed. And so in reality, if you think about that, you realize that half of whatever happened never got recorded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's missing. It's yeah. missing forever. It will never be seen. It will never mm-hmm. be shown. And then the same movie that you shot at twenty-four frames is projected through a mechanical projector that's doing exactly the same thing. And there's a shutter in the projector, and so the light on the screen is going on and off and on and off, really fast. Mm-hmm. And it's fast enough to where you don't perceive the flicker. But in the early days of it, people noticed the flicker, and they called it the flicks. Right. Ah, yeah. The movie yeah. industry used to be called flickers yeah. because everybody noticed the flickering until the Lumiere brothers invented the double-bladed shutter. Of course. So each frame is projected twice. And so I'm like this weird guy <laughs> who tries to understand everything about how it all works. And I've discovered some fundamental things because digital projection does not have a shutter. Right. Okay. And televisions don't have shutters. And so when you go to a higher frame rate in order to get rid of blur and strobe and all the other horrible attributes of movie and you try to improve the quality of it, it looks like video. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it gets this derogatory, what they call the soap opera look. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I've just made some fundamental discoveries that we can make movies now that have shutters. We can do it digitally. We can make it look fully cinematic at any frame rate you want in 2D or 3D. And it's like immersive spectacle 
So uh, that's what I'm on right now. And I just feel like I'm out in the woods. Uh. No, one's, no one's paying attention. And I've been trying to promote this thing for six years at my own expense. Mm. And uh, trying to get the industry to take it seriously because we are on, we are faced with an opportunity to do or die, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the face of streaming and television and yes. a lot of commoditized movies, mm-hmm. that the epic spectacle that David Lean and Marty Scorsese and Francis Coppola right. and others, Steven Spielberg, is not getting to the audience at all. Mm-hmm. The theaters are not good enough. The medium itself is not good enough. Mm-hmm. So I've dedicated the last few years of my life to fundamentally changing the medium itself. But I can tell I'm going to have to go. Busy man. Had to run. Still has so much amazing work to do. And who are we to keep him from it? Doug Trumbull was so kind to share time with us in Kubrick's universe. It was wonderful to also hear him discuss his making and directing his brilliant 1971 sci-fi classic, Silent Running. If you haven't seen it, see it. And if you haven't seen it for a while, see it again. Great movie. We were also touched by him sharing his memories of his journey with Kubrick, from being a young man full of ideas Stanley would take seriously, to their final phone call, to sitting alone at Kubrick's grave at his funeral, talking to him for the last time. Douglas Trumbull goes on innovating into the new millennium, and we couldn't be more thankful that he chose to share parts of his amazing life story with us, and you. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to wish you all well during these trying times. We have lots more in store for you for 2021 and beyond, including... Nah, I'm just messing with you. You're going to have to stay tuned and see... Or hear? Or... Well, you get the idea. So, if you haven't already... Subscribe to Kubrick's Universe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever your pods are casted. Just so long as they aren't cast into the void of space. Hey, give us a like while you're at it. You give the like, we give you our all. Simple, really. And while you're at it, why not join the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook? With over 20,000 members, including Kubrick colleagues and scholars, SCAS remains the world's greatest resource for info both new and archival on the 20th century's most visionary filmmaker. I'm your host, Jason Furlong, thanking you for tuning in. Our podcast is produced by the tireless and wonderful Stephen Rigg. On behalf of Stephen and our research team, Mark Lentz and James Marinaccio, We'd like to also thank you for your continued support. We'll catch up again soon in Kubrick's universe. Until then, set the controls for the heart of the sun.
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.